I remember feeling who's going to believe me, you know, the t- and, th- and this is something that the book I hope makes people think about a little bit. And I've been thinking about even now lately is, you know, if the sign stealing doesn't happen, that disc, you know, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile a, team, a baseball team being really good on the field and a lot of other stuff that you don't see um, really going wrong? You know, and, and we're so result oriented in sports in general in life. They don't steal the signs. And I write the book about all this cultural stuff. Everybody's going, so what? They're winners. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, recording this from Jupiter, Florida, as spring training revs to a beginning. And this week, I am pleased to be joined by author, reporter extraordinaire, Evan Drellick, senior writer at The Athletic. Evan, thank you so much for taking this time in what I'm sure is a, a busy week for you. No, Derek, thanks for having me. I'm glad to glad to spend some time with you. Evan's new book, which you probably already know about, is called Winning Fixes Everything, and it's how baseball's brightest minds created sports' biggest mess. It's about the story that you broke at The Athletic there with Ken Rosenthal about the Houston Astros sign-stealing caper and the links they went to blur the rules as to what was permissible to get an edge. This book and that scheme, is it fair to say it has its roots with the Cardinals? Because that's where so many of the main protagonists of your story first got introduced, not just to each other, but to baseball? Yeah, I think broadly the book answers the question, how did we get to science dealing? How did we get to this massive scandal? I, I don't think it's uh, – the cultural elements uh, that plague the Astros – that plague Jeff Luno um, certainly have their roots in St. Louis. You know, the sign stealing itself, it, it, it might be a stretch to tie that all the way back to St. Louis. But, you know, the pushback that St. Louis, that Luno dealt with in St. Louis, the environment he encountered there, and then the stance he takes and approach he takes in Houston, it's all an outgrowth, right? I mean, there's a reason the book, after the introduction, starts with, Luno's time before getting to the Cardinals, then the entire second chapter is the Cardinals. And that's right. because we, you know, we see how this, we see how it builds. We see how the sport is evolving and how, you know, one event with Luno leads to another. I, I'm really struck by, I mean, the, the book is, and I mean, would you agree? It is kind of like a Jeff Luno story, right? It's the rise and fall, right? And then, and all the pieces around it, right? It's, it's how did this, outsider who was a fan of baseball and, and you do a great job of like in introducing how he went to games, how he went to Oakland games, how he went to how he sought out the game before being invited into the game by the Cardinals. Um, but it is very much like how he is. It, what is the current phrase of, of use is a disruptor and that he kind of sought to be. Yeah, I, it, it, it certainly details uh, Jeff in depth. And, and his desire to you know, basically be the next Billy Bean and to mm. um, be the next one to, I think, get acclaim for revolutionizing the sport. And, and in a way, he, he certainly contributed to that next wave. You know, he, he, he was on the bleeding edge of the innovation that was happening in the sport post money balls, sport entered the big data era. And, you know, the book also includes. Uh, Jim Crane and some mm-hmm. of the stuff that was going on with the commissioner's office. But yeah, I wouldn't disagree that, that, you know, no question. Jeff Luna is a central figure in this book. So, you know, as before we get like into some of the details of it, Banana, I want to talk to you too about like how you, your career right, have kind of paralleled this too, put, put you in a good spot to, you know, obviously your skills as a reporter helped unearth it, but, I'm just amazed at like the context you could give to it just because of your career covering the Houston Astros as a beat writer. And then your time covering the Boston Red Sox as a beat writer, two teams central in this story. But before we get to that, I want to ask you like, is this a story of organizational arrogance 
the notion that like, hey, everybody's doing it, we're just going to do it better, that 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 then kind of becomes organizational negligence? I think in part, both of those things are correct. There was an organizational arrogance with Jeff Luno and Jim Crane's Astros. There was a negligence. Um, in a way, what undid the Astros was not so much what they did focus on, but what they didn't, you know, when we get to sign stealing in 2017 and you know, we're already many chapters and years into the book. Mm -hmm. I, I start that chapter by suggesting that there wasn't a team. It, it would be difficult to say that there was a team uh, that they, that they were the team most likely to start cheating. But I do mm. think that they were the team most likely to continue cheating, that that there, there was not the environment and culture in place. C communication was thin. Relationships were strained. There was a lot of distrust and dysfunction. And, and it, it's really like this juxtaposition between you see this very successful team on the field in 17. And as we find out later, there's a cheating scheme in part powering that. They were still a very talented team. But, but what you're Super seeing talented. publicly is is – not really representative of the chaos going on behind the scenes. I mean, at 17 alone, you have mm -hmm. the management consulting firm McKinsey coming in. It's, um, you know, it, it, the, I think the whole book challenges this narrative. Well, if they, you hold up a trophy at the end, things are going great. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. really, you know, the reality is sports writers, you know, it, we're, we're condi everybody's conditioned to think this way. If you win, you're great. What if there's a lot more to it that you just don't quite know? Yeah, I found that that stretch about 2017 and the active participation of a consulting firm, McKenzie, you mentioned, which is where Lunau came from before going to the Cardinals. And just almost like this third party presence and, if you will, an audit of how they do business. I thought it was fascinating because in a way it was like Lunau trying to poke holes in the success or to search for soft spots to make decisions that he didn't want to make, right? Like it, it was reminiscent a little bit of, you know, almost what he encountered with the Cardinals, only he was in the Walt Jockety role, trying to figure out where the, where the conversations were going that he wasn't involved in, right? I just found it fascinating in a way history repeated itself. But in Luno fashion, he took it like to another degree and brought in these like outside evaluators to make a decision that he didn't want to. Yeah, he wanted McKinsey to rubber stamp the firing of a bunch of scouts, mostly pro scouts, yeah. earlier pro scouts. But there was also this big fight that was brewing in R and D. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in R and D being the it's like it's the center of everything the Astros were doing. It's the an innovation, the analytics, the models. It's you know the department that started as uh, decision science and sciences in Houston under Sig, but Sig gets mm -hmm. removed from that job, and yet he kind of uh, remains in Luno's ear and remains a powerful voice. And and so you have Jeff and uh, Sig who want to be more conservative. They don't want to incorporate these new data streams into their models without really knowing for sure, okay, well, well, how do we value these things? And then you have kind of the younger set, Taubman, Mike Fast, uh, Pete Patillo. These, these, you know, Pete Patillo is now the GM of the Giants. Mm -hmm. Taubman was fired. Mike Fast with the Braves, um, who, you know, see this data coming in and, and think, like, it's valuable, and even if the model can't interpret it perfectly, we, we got to find a way to use it. And so Luno brings in McKinsey to adjudicate this fight. And yeah. McKinsey is not brought in to also do implementation. So they make recommendations, but then they, they kind of get removed. And so the whole thing was just chaos. People were pitted against each other. And, you know, there's, there's a poignant quote that I thought uh, I, I thought was poignant from an executive in the book where they say they thought that the McKinsey report is really what led to the destruction of the Astros front office. And, and the mm -hmm. Astros are still getting all this praise. They're still winning these games, you know. But it's not often we hear about what's really going on behind the scenes. And and you know, Jeff 
very media savvy guy, mm-hmm. was able to position Sig and Mike Elias, his St. Louis friends, in the public narrative. And that was really only a slice of what was going on. You know, I think I think there were two executives in particular, Mike Fast and Brandon Taubman, who really in the later years of the Astros had become the tip of the spear. And yeah. Um, weren't getting credit, and part people believe that's because Luno didn't want them to get poached. And so it's just what what you saw and heard about publicly with the Astros was it was really only a sliver of what was actually happening. Yeah, the the role Brandon Taubman plays throughout the book is very striking, um, just in the many different ways um, he brought, uh, like you said, like a point, the, the spear point to whether, whether it was arbitration or whether it was advancement or whether it was, um, you know, even getting into a fight in center field or not a physical fight, but a, uh, uh, an argument in center field at Yankee Stadium right over a camera. Um, you know, it's like at, at several flashpoints, he's right there and then ultimately fired for it, for it later. Um, in the uh, which which comes later in the book and and also later in the Astro story the sig that you mentioned in the Michael Eyes Michael Eyes now runs the Baltimore Orioles where he brought sig with him sig is sig Madoff who was both a, a data cruncher and thinker for NASA a blackjack dealer and helped um, Sam Walker dominate in fantasy baseball for the book Fantasyland um, all of that and then coming to the Cardinals where he got his you know, foothold in baseball and has really built a reputation for being innovative, um, particularly with the draft, which was like the point of contention, right? Was how was it using the the model that the car that they all started first with the Cardinals and where did it need to be adapted to adjust to new tech, right? Such as TrackMan and Rapsodo and all this stuff, right? It was that was that was one of the friction points. Yeah, the Astros in the early years, and certainly when Sig and Jeff are, are still, and Mike are still with St. Louis, you know, th- there's this great advantage that they are able to ascertain in the draft. And, you know, you had an interesting story back at the time that, well, a lot of these draft picks in St. Louis were safe picks rather than necessarily mm-hmm. high impact picks. But, you know, I think in aggregate, the, the certainly that group's felt they were they were being successful and they 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 felt that way once they got into houston but as track man started to proliferate as teams started to catch up and it's a word of mouth industry the same way Moneyball took fire well you know a few years later it, it, it's copycat it's a copycat industry and so they're seeing the advantage they held in the draft start to wane and and that does lead to the art you know where do we go from here? How do we, how do we keep innovating? Are we doing the thing that, um, you know, comes after Moneyball or not? You know, what's mm-hmm. the next step forward? And so, you know, I, I think from the outside, it looked like uh, I think the Astros position themselves is always having the answers. The irony is they really didn't. They, they were really feeling out things as they went. And, you know, when those guys get to Houston – they're moving incredibly quickly and Mm -hmm. there are corners cut with things like ground control, the database that ends up getting hacked into uh, by former Cardinals executive, Chris Correa. And um, yeah, the, the, the speed at which they were moving uh, plays a role in, 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 in what they didn't pay attention to. Let's talk hacking. Let's there. There's a good, portion of the book um that is revelatory in what not what what was going on at the time um not just the penalties that the cardinals faced and how that unspooled with an investigation into breaches um unauthorized breaches of the astros database that were then traced back to the cardinals the new york times first revealed that the investigation had been going ongoing and then that that kind of dropped on baseball that they had traced it back to the Cardinals offices and possibly a Cardinals executive, which was later revealed. Um, In your book, you detail and offer additional details into the sense that what Korea said in court, the, what his claim was that he was poking around looking for what the Astros had taken from the Cardinals, 
basically intellectual property that they had just taken with them from St. Louis. Um, and he said, he relayed in court and the, and the judge said, so you broke into your neighbor's house to check to see if they had stolen your tools, which is a great analogy, to be honest. Um, and, uh, but you, you detail in the book moments where this was pretty widely known within the Astros front office that they had info from their Cardinals. Yeah, I think I think one of the, the bigger reveals in the book is that there are two Astros employees who uh, say that who confirm that, yes, there there was Cardinals information available to them, that that indeed Cardinals information had made its way uh, to the Astros. I actually in the process of reporting the book and, and I don't think this the information I'm about to explain is necessarily the most damning. I think some of the other stuff is is more egregious, but in, in 2015, there, there's this large meeting between the front office. It, 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 David Stearns, who was Luno's assistant GM, has just left for the Milwaukee Brewers. He's going to go run the Brewers, and so the Astros are figuring out, you know, how do we move forward? And so there's this large presentation. Brandon Taubman led it. Others contributed to it. Sig, Mike Fast. And it, it, it's touching on all the different areas of baseball operations. And they're, they're talking about pro scouting. It's, it's really kind of the start of, you know what, the, the data that's coming in, the video streams, we probably don't need to be spending as much money as we are putting people on the road. There was talk about international scouting at this time. That market, I, I believe, if I'm remembering right, was still uncapped. So you could spend what you wanted. The, the Astros felt, well, we should be. Uh, taking more lottery tickets because that's what they are. That if you hit on some of these international amateur players, considering how low the signing bonuses are, you know, the, the returns are massive. So we should be, we should just be doing more of that period. And they were talking about the draft and how do they keep innovating in the draft? And, and one of the slides or, or multiple slides in this presentation that um, uh, w- was included to kind of demonstrate, hey, our advantage in the draft is fading, included Cardinals draft rankings from prior years. So how the Cardinals evaluated players going into a draft purely statistically. And they went, you know, and that's the kind of information that you, that, you know, when I, when I see it um, and and I hear about it as well, that you go, this shouldn't, be here why would this be here and you know it and and it was acknowledged to me that 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 was um kind of questionable uh information for them to have it it you know as far as what you can really glean from draft rankings years after the fact not much you know probably the more valuable information as was described to me uh, by people on the inside that the astros did have would have been um rankings of uh, 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 biomechanics from a guy named Tim Levesque, who was a consultant to the Cardinals. There were things about PV, present value, uh, research that Mike Gersh had done, you know, things that, that probably are more usable uh, or applicable on a continuing basis than, well, here's how we looked at our draft X years ago. But still, uh, it, I think it's a little shocking that you would have that information. Once you kind of get this information, you, you, you know the scope of what the Astros knew and are able to kind of confirm with some excellent reporting there what they had from the Cardinals. Does that change how you look back on what Correa said in court and sort of the whole scandal that happened as it unfolded, that, that maybe there was something to what he was poking around trying to find yeah i thought one of the more revelatory things in the book is there were a couple of um, astros employees who did confirm to me uh anonymously but nonetheless that that they were aware that there was cardinals information you know even beyond draft rankings in mm. the astros possession um so i'll read you a couple quotes real quick from the book here one of them, his whole defense was like, well, Sig did it first. And then that was the part that no one was really ever, ever able to prove. And what Sig did first was basically just take a bunch of stuff with him when he left, like Levesque, like research on replacement level that Cardinals executive Mike Gersh had done. It's not good for Sig. It's not good for Correa. 
It's not good for the Astros. It's not good for the Cardinals. Baseball would hate it. The truth of it is that what Correa did and how many times he did it, all that is worse than what's known. And whether Sig took stuff from the Cardinals and whether Jeff knew that Sig took stuff is worse than is known. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, what Korea did was illegal, and how he was pursued by you know by the feds was to to basically protect against executive espionage, right? Like they were trying to set you know to protect the formula for Coke or the designs for Ford as much as anything. Um, did, did what you learned is it is that a vindication though of Korea in any way? I mean he. He did break the law. He served time. But from a baseball sense, do you think there's this vindication? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the equivalent of, uh, well, other people were stealing signs, so therefore our stealing signs is justified. I think it's less that it justifies. I mean, his instinct was, uh, based on my reporting, and you know, what beyond his instinct, what Correa mm-hmm. said happened publicly, my reporting shows, did to at least an extent um, – occur i i think the question is more you know what wh- why wasn't it pursued further we, mm-hmm. why didn't we um why didn't we hear about kind of uh, a counter investigation that type of thing and i think the answer there is it's it's very messy you know if you're the cardinals and you start looking further and further into things um, you know, what if what if you find something you don't want to find? You know, what if, what if it shows that indeed, despite all the denials from the Cardinals organization, that Correa had uh, communicated with others in the Cardinals organization? I mean, he said in court, "I told colleagues." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so the Cardinals moved away from it. But yeah, I I, I think if we, if you want to do the well, they were doing it first game. Well. Yeah, no, there, there's evidence of that. The uh, you know, Crane wanted the Cardinals punished severely. He said that privately to Major League Baseball. He wanted them to face penalties beyond what uh, others had, and even in some ways beyond what uh, what <laughs> what the commissioner could do to a member club. Um, you know, almost like kind of a, a, a reset on the franchise. Did you, in the course of talking with folks, get an answer from the Cardinals as to um, why they didn't then try to pursue it? Was it exactly kind of as you described there? They, I mean, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to have a have some whiplash at them as they tried to lash out at what Crane was asking for? Yeah, you know, I, in the book at one point in an earlier draft went a little bit more into that discussion. Uh, I, I think in the end, there's not much of it in, in the final version of it. You know, well, why why wouldn't there have been more of it um but that that is what one person who who was plugged into this whole thing surmised is that you know you you don't want this to keep going um certainly from major league baseball's perspective but even potentially from the cardinals perspective you know that that um it's it's not i don't like using a violent analogy but it's a little bit potentially turning the gun on yourself well you just don't Mm -hmm. know right you just don't know what you're going to find uh if if you keep it going there and so, you know, Bill DeWitt's on the record in the book saying, um, I thought it was best we, we moved along from this as, as quickly as possible. Um, and so that's what happened. But, it, you know, it feels like a loose end. Right? Yeah. It, feel, it doesn't feel, and, and in, in a way, it does relate to the science stealing that way, where it's just, it's not tidy. It's not clean. It's not, um, maybe satisfying is, is, a, is a word that is relevant. It, it, it doesn't quite feel like, Everything that should have happened happened, right? Yeah, you're right. There's not uh, closure. Somebody, yeah, it feels like somebody's getting away with something. Yeah, right. I mean, a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. He comes up again in your book because isn't there a phrase about how the Astros then repeated Korea's defense? Yeah, somebody from inside the Astros when uh, in 2018, if you, if you remember before. You know, Ken and I have the big story in, in the 2018 playoffs. The Astros had this lower level employee intern, Kyle McLaughlin, snooping around in uh, Cleveland and in Boston around the other team's dugouts. And, you know, those teams were annoyed. Like, what are you doing? You can't be doing this. Are you trying to steal signs? And the Astros defense, which MLB 
validated at the time. You know, it was a pretty quick investigation. It's in the middle of the postseason. MLB has no interest in doing much more. Um, was oh, this this is this is counter surveillance. We're making sure that they're, they're not breaking in our house. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was somebody on the inside of the Astros who noted I, I, the quote was, you know, that's just a weak Chris Correa defense. That's exactly what you were upset about Chris Correa do, saying and doing. And now you're you're using the same thing. You know, it's okay if you're taking pictures around somebody else's dugout. Apparently, is because it's in self defense. So when when the story of the hacking first broke, um, I was up in Minnesota and trying to catch up and write, and then also kind of expand on what was going on. And one of the stories that I looked into was not just the growth of the um, the analytics department in the Cardinals, which you uh, detail greatly in your book, but also what was baseball supposed to do? And I talked to the longtime GM of Minnesota, um, particularly what was baseball supposed to do with intellectual property, essentially? What was, what were they supposed to do with IP? Because there really wasn't any, you know, was there, was there stuff in contracts about this? No, the Cardinals acknowledged that they didn't have anything in their contract. Talked to the commissioner, the commissioner said they needed to put some things in executive contracts about IP. And I talked to Terry Ryan, the longtime Minnesota twins um, general manager. And he said, you can't, ask a scout to leave his brain on the desk. And there, there is something to that, right? Like the Cubs have hired Dan Kantrovitz to bring in his knowledge of pitching, which he was a part of when the Cardinals were very good at drafting or the Angels bragging about having the Cardinal way book for how to run some drills and stuff in spring training. So there's always been like this flow of information in baseball but this is new and and are we still kind of unsure how to handle it so back at the time i did when i was at the chronicle so was, you know and, and, and i don't i don't know if this would have been once we found out what the it was the cardinals or not but i i was you know trying to dig into it just the way you were um on your end and i remember talking to lawyers and and people who know this space well um you know corporate espionage and um, IP and uh, what I remember of the explanation is that you can always take what's in your head with you. Um, it, it's when you take something that uh, is more than that that it becomes a problem, right? It's it's not the suggestion that you need to literally forget everything you you know, um, but you know more concrete materials. Uh, that would be the problem. And that, that is a very vague definition. And I'm, I'm trying as I'm speaking to look up my old story where I reported on this and it's probably going to take me a second. Uh, but that was, um, just the idea that a scout knows what a good fastball looks like and you can't have him control all delete all he's learned about watching the game. Just like you can't, um, do that with a manager who has seen a double switch implode, but, if there's some rehab training thing that they do for pitchers coming back from shoulder surgery, would that cross the line? Like if they, I mean, would that be proprietary? Um, yeah. So it's a matter of, of defining, I, I think I might've found it here. It, it, it's a matter of what qualifies as a trade secret. Oh, fascinating. Um, I think the Astros could have a case for, for theft of – and I'm reading from an old Chronicle story. This didn't even make the book. I think the Astros could have a case for theft of trade secrets if we assume that the information from the Cardinals took from them was a trade secret, said attorney Peter Torin, who's a former Department of Justice prosecutor over 20 years of intellectual property, commercial litigation experience. It would, Based on what I've read in the reports, it would meet the le- legal definition of a trade secret. It just means information that's secret that provides the owner of that information with some economic advantage. So based on that kind of broad definition, if it, if it was kept secret and provided the Astros with an advantage, it was a trade secret. I think the Astros would have a strong civil case. Da, 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 da. So, you know, yeah, this is murky technical legal waters, um, but, yeah. but I, it, it's not it's not the case that like you know, if you hire if if you hire a scout and the scout remembers that somebody threw ninety five, the scout is not doing something wrong by remembering that guy through ninety five, right? I mean, right. in the extreme example, obvious but worth stating, I suppose. 
that description there of trade, of trade secrets, do you think, you know, there was a time and there still is, I mean, it'll be this spring as coaches move around and there will be celebrations of that, of that coach who comes in and goes, Hey man, we, we had all your signs because, or we had all your pitches because you were tipping pitches or, you know, Hey, we, we do the base run and drill this way. Um, and they brought it from another team. Um, there'll be that veteran player who comes into a clubhouse and notifies a hitter. Hey man, we all, we knew what you were doing, that kind of stuff. And we, we celebrate that in these stories, but do you think there's this chilling effect at all it, because of trade secrets that you get managers and coaches less likely to talk about these things and how that might impact the game? Yeah, I think the, you know, when this started happening, I don't know, 10 years ago, I mean, certainly when I'd gotten to Houston and Houston was particularly paranoid about it, I guess, up until the point of, you know, act, uh, effectively protecting their own database. But, um, you know, they, they were, you know, I'll tell a story. This is a story. It's not in the book. Uh, I had written, I had talked to Brent Strom, former Cardinals uh, yeah. uh, coach who, who went over to Houston with Luno. One of the big um, losses of that era. One of the big yeah. losses from the Cardinals. He, um, I was writing about Asher Wojciechowski, you know, mm-hmm. who, who um, at that point in time was, you know, I, I don't even know if he was in the major league picture, right? He was, he was a guy in spring training and I was writing a story, you know, a notebook item about him. So not a big thing, but just I'm looking for information about him. And I was talking to Strom about him. And uh, one of the things Strom told me was, you know, we're, we're trying to have him work more in the middle of the plate. Everybody thinks it's got to be the, the left side of the plate and the right side of the plate. But actually, there, there can actually be an advantage to working in the middle as well, which was interesting. And it was, you know, a nugget that was in this notebook. I, I don't believe it was a headline. It was just it was in there. Mm-hmm. And then what happened after that, I think it was literally the next day after after that story runs, is uh, the Astros clamped down on the ability to speak to coaches. It, it's no, you know, we can't have this stuff being given away anymore. Um, and that, that at the time seemed to be a combination of both Luno and Hinch. Uh, and I think that was something that actually stayed in place for quite some time. Um, but I think it, I think it sucks that, you know, all the kind of fun, interesting behind the scenes stuff now takes a long time to get out and everybody, oh, you know, we can't talk about that. Well, all right, your sport has become walk strikeouts and home runs, and nobody wants to talk about what's going on behind the scenes. Guess what? It, it's, you know, there is some uh, element of front offices. It's an entertainment business uh, revealing and talking about what goes on behind the scenes because people are interested, you know, and, and, if, and if everything interesting is, is behind closed doors, well, you know, over time and in small ways, I think that does have an effect. You know, look, people still find stories. And as a reporter, you, you will still find a way to find stories. It, it's not like you're totally at a dead end. But I, I just think it's too bad that, you know, once upon a time, people were more willing to talk about, you know, here's how we're approaching this guy or, or this mm-hmm. is why this guy is so hard to fix. And now it's, it's you know, it's all proprietary and it it's overkill. I mean, I get it. It's they're in their own little world, but I, I don't 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 you think it's overkill? Yeah, yeah, I think that you know that you're losing. Uh, my concern has been, and uh, you know, earlier this week we put the the podcast I recorded with Tim McCarver back on the late Tim McCarver, late great Tim McCarver, back on this feed, and and we talked a lot about storytelling and how in some ways it's being squeezed out of the game. There's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. Um, but you know, some of the great storytellers have retired. Um, some of the folks coming in are reluctant to tell stories. Now, whether or not that's because um they don't know if it's gonna get, you know, posted on Instagram, you know, from the clubhouse or or they they don't know, you know, if it's gonna be tweeted out as they say it. Um, or exactly I think what you're talking about is even more compelling is this notion that if you give too many details, then you're somehow, you know, showing this, uh, these trade secrets. I will add though, that in some ways it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you talk yourself into believing this is something I know that others don't, you're never proven wrong. It's pretty (laughs) good. It's a pretty good, it's a pretty good venture for you to go to a team and say, well, I know things other teams aren't doing. If nobody's talking about how everybody's doing the same thing, 
it it does help create this air of mystery um, that has never popped um, until reporters come along and pop it, I guess. Um, I just, I find that part fascinating. If you're really confident that you're doing something new, um, then maybe you talk about it a little bit more. Um, but when you don't talk about it, then maybe it's not all that new at all. That's fair. Yeah. People, I mean, uh, I think one way you, people are high on their own supply to some degree. <laughs> yeah. Where does the hacking scandal, which got the attention of the feds, um, and the notion of we are going to go in and decode something another team is doing, merge with the modern sign stealing scandal, which is effectively we're going to go in and we're going to decode what another team is doing. Right. I mean, you you can see the the shared general. I mean, that's kind of the point of that guy from before, right? The, this this is a weak Chris. It, 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 in a very basic sense, they are similar acts, yes. Um, uh, 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 federal sentencing guidelines would disagree, but yeah, you, you can you can spirit, spiritually understand this notion of um, trying to get ahead by getting a peek under the hood of what somebody else is doing. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, in a very, in a very like, you know, 10,000 feet type of way. I agree with that. Yeah, there's there's crop circles that create a Venn diagram. Is that what kind of what we're seeing? Like, the, yeah, 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 10, yeah, yeah. I see that. We're so yeah. high up above. Uh, uh, we're so high up there, you know. We're, we're just yeah, like, yeah. The so all right. Take us to the origins of sign stealing, not all the way back to the shot heard around the world, but more so to the American League East and what the Yankees and Red Sox were doing and how that is such a key moment in what then leads to the Astros. And if you could begin by first describing what the base runner approach is, what, what the base runner ploy is. Yeah. What's been called the base runner system or the base runner scheme, whatever you want to call it. Uh, base right, running so, caper. I like yeah, caper. That, that works too. So if you go to, it really ties back to the advent of replay you know, before that, Teams had televisions and clubhouses. Is it possible that somebody watched a, a game on TV in the clubhouse and you know caught a sign at one point? Yeah, maybe. But it would have been so infrequent that it, it, it wasn't a big deal. You know, I talked to Pat Neshek for the book, and he he was talking about how by you know the mid mid two thousands when he was in Minnesota, you know, they started to have a computer feed, and like if you had wanted to start doing that, that then, you could have. Potentially, it might have been hard work because you're still probably working off the telecast at that point. But when we get to 2014, Seelig's last year, Manfred's, uh, you know, year before Manfred takes over, they put in the expanded replay system. And what's what's a part of that? Well, now you can challenge. How do you re review for challenges? Every team has a video replay room. And so, you know, these veteran, smarter, more experienced players on teams like the Yankees, the Yankees as, as best we can tell are ground zero. It's possible that, that, that it developed independently of them as well. Um, you know, started realizing like, okay, we've got a shot of the catcher signs. It, it, we're close to the dugout. Let's just <laughs> look at the signs. And then if you, if you know what they are and the other team isn't changing the signs quickly, which, you know, before this era, people didn't, you know, if there wasn't somebody on base, like you didn't think about it quite as much. It just wasn't something people had to think about as often because you didn't assume that somebody was doing something really nefarious. Um, and they didn't feel this was nefarious. You know, the Yankees back in 14 to 15. It's like, well, it's, it's there for me to look at it. Why not? And it's true. MLB did give them uh, those rooms. So you get the information, you decode it, you give it, get it to the dugout. Somebody just walks it up or you can call the dugout or you could text somebody in the dugout. And, um, if somebody gets on base, guy on second base knows what's coming, you know, knows how to crack the code, right? So then whatever, you tip your helmet or, you know, you do mm -hmm. something to indicate to the hitter what, what pitch is coming. So it's certainly uh, using electronics to steal signs, which by the letter of the law, um, I think should have been punished as such. You know, the commissioner in his first uh, foray into punishing any teams in 2017, when he, when he finds the Red Sox and the Yankees, he doesn't punish the behavior itself. 
he punishes the subsequent relay of communic of, of the information. Huh. So if you were using an Apple Watch, right? That's what we call it, the Apple Watch scandal. It was that it, they right. were using the the smart device to get it out of the room or calling, in the case of the Yankees, using the dugout phone to get it to the dugout. But the actual act of decoding the signs using electronic equipment, at that point, he found was um, not the violation. He thought that, he thought it was a gray area. I don't think it was a gray area, but that's what he finds. So anyway, the Astros uh, start doing this, but want something better and, and more effective. And they do that. And they, they get rid of the whole runner on second base entirely and you know it's a direct relay center field camera to mo- uh, monitor behind the dugout in the tunnel and then you can communicate on any pitch that you've decoded and you don't need a runner on base does that that also kind of expedites any sort of scouting report on a pitcher effectively because you're you know what they're what the team is calling to throw Right, I mean, it gives you a jump start on any pitcher, a new pitcher, pitcher who's been around a while, pitcher who you have a lot of video on. It don't matter at that point, right? You you mean the the in game ability to decode this? Yeah, season? yeah, yeah. You know, but I mean, like teams, advanced staffs were doing. You know, it, it's that difference between you can decode signs out of the game whenever you want, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, this this you know, this guy threw. Um, whatever, you know, you, 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 you can, you can sit there. I mean, the difference is you had the camera angles to do it, right? Like this is the kind of stuff that used to be harder off a telecast because the telecast, I guess most of the time you would see the catcher's signs, but you know, it's not, it's not squarely right there on the catcher's crotch the way that, right, right, right. Um, you know, so it's just much easier to like, all right, if you want to go back through literally every catcher's sign, now they all had those cameras and some teams put in even more cameras. I ask that because I I think one of the like I don't know yeah one of the tragedies of this is like a guy like Mike Bolsinger the young pitcher who got one crack in the majors um, with Toronto I believe right Toronto yeah and then is you know runs into a team that has him figured out and, and you know before he even throws a pitch that. That to me, that's that stings a little bit when it's your one chance, and through nothing you've done, it's the 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 mound isn't even. I mean, the field isn't level. Right, right. Well, I mean, this was you know, and people, not everybody liked to hear it, but you know, this was really the reason that Mike Fires gave Ken for why he was willing to go on the record about this is because younger mm-hmm. guys are walking into Minute Maid and getting knocked around, and and he wanted to see the game cleaned up, and I, and I do think that subject in general can get overlooked here, right? Where there is money for people on the line, you know, you can, you can almost literally be taking food off of somebody else's table uh, unfairly, you know, and it's, it's, or, you know, even, even in a more positive reading, it's still the appearance of an advantage. Even if you want to start going down and well, how much did it really help them? Well, they said they believed it helped them. Carlos Beltran said it. Carlos Correa said it. Uh, you know, you don't do it unless you believe it helps you. And I think intuitively we know that for some hitters, if you know what's coming, they consider it an advantage, right? You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Like it's, you know, you, you can kind of go to these these long lengths to walk away from the obvious um, sometimes, which I think is, you know, I, 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 I don't I mean, it'd be good for me to take a walk, but I, I don't I don't need that long walk. <laughs> do you so you're a minute made in the. Yeah, in the playoffs, um, and you finish your work, and you're moved because of reporting you've already done and interviews you've already done to go take a photo of the tunnel to see if and if there's any remnant of the trash can caper. Um, what what prompted you to do that, and how long did those photos burn a hole in your pocket as you wondered about like where the if how to pursue that story? Yeah, so it's it, three games in Houston in the ALCS, and I find out Red Sox Astros, Red Sox Astros eighteen ALCS, and before game one or game two, I find out really the whole thing, and um, you know I, I'm floored and I'm thinking, well, how do how the hell do I get this? You know, what are my next steps here? And it's pretty hard to kind of think about anything else at that point. I mean, I still had to write some stuff for the for, for my day job, but you know, I 
I wanted to pursue this. <laughs> and so uh, I decide after the series ends in game five that, you know, I, I have, I'm working for a regional sports network at the time. So I'm on the field, not many other people around on the field and I'm on the third base side. The Astro side is the first base side. So, you know, all right, let me, you know, I had, a, I knew in my head, I was, I was already told uh, garbage can was on the right. Also on the right would have been a uh, monitor on the wall where some wires would be, you know? And so I walk in there, there's no monitor because, you know, they, they often remove the monitor uh, sometimes in game if they thought they were about to be detected. And uh, yeah, garbage can wire on the wall and, you know, to year later, but you know, that, that, that's the setup, um, you know, mm-hmm. benches, you know, seating area on the left where people would sit and decode. And so I just, I took, I think it's four pictures. I have a memory. I, I kept, kept trying to look for it recently. I thought I had taken a panorama and I remembered trying to take one. I think in the end, like, you know, sometimes you take a panorama, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. And I yeah. think I was trying to be quick and I, and I, so I don't know that I got the panorama. So there's four photos that it was screaming at you too fast. The phone was saying too fast, right, too fast. Right, yeah, slow yeah. it down, buddy. So you get the uh, color bars of a panorama as opposed to a panorama. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I took them, and yeah, I mean, look, the 13 month period between getting the story out and you know, then when the story runs, we didn't explain that photo at all. They, they, there's no cut line. <laughs> I don't know why this was, but. You know, it doesn't say like credit to Evan Drelly. and not that I needed it, but, it, you know, there was no explanation of like, where did that photo come from? Um, but that's where it came from. It was I carried it, I guess, rather literally around for 13 months. Yeah. And I mean, do you, did you look back? I mean, as you kind of fiddled with the story, I mean, was that sort of the, the tangible representation of why you keep pursuing it? Um, you know, I don't know that I looked back at the photo that often. I mean, I maybe a couple times, but it, it was more just, you know, you. The, I remember feeling, who's going to believe me? You know, the and, the and this is something that the book, I hope, makes people think about a little bit, and I've been thinking about even now lately. Is, um, you know, if the sign stealing doesn't happen, okay. Everything else in my book, right? I mean, this is a fictional world, I guess. But all the other, let's, all the other culture stuff was there, and it was there before the science deal. And you know, if you go to 2019, which is the year we break the story, you, know, you go to that summer. I mean, you know, the, the team was that was maybe the best Astros team in history, right? The franchise looks so good, and yet I know even then, all this crap is going on behind the scenes, and and not mm-hmm. not to the extent I find out, uh, you know, once the uh, story comes out and once I do the reporting for the book, but um, that disc, you know, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile a a baseball team being really good on the field and a lot of other stuff that you don't see um, really going wrong, you know, and and we're so result oriented in sports in general in life. And that, I think that's, you know, it's like, what if (laughs) they don't steal the signs and I write the book about all this cultural stuff, everybody's going, so what? They're winners, and and you know it, it's it's almost uncomfortable, right? For for it to take such a huge blow up like the sign stealing to open people's eyes to, whoa, what's going on inside there, right? And in the case of the in the Astros, you had not just that; you had the Brandon Taubman incident. I mean, you had some loud public stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the reliever who they acquired from a guy Toronto. named Roberto Osuna, correct? Yes, that was a big contract. Yeah, right. There, you know, there's kind of a, a series of these things, and I think it is true that whatever, whether it was one thing, two thing, three things, some number of things were going to eventually catch up to this management group. You know, it's not a coincidence that all these things happen. The way you describe that sort of hints at or begins to answer the question I want to ask you is how your time as a beat writer in Houston. I guess gave you momentum for this story, not just awareness of the story, but allowed you to revisit some of that time, but maybe with a clearer eye. Yeah, it was in more context, right? And more ability yeah. to kind of get to the bottom of it. Um, yeah, I think having been in Houston through these formative years, I wasn't there right when Luno got there. I got there in late 13. So I guess he, he was finishing up his second season or his second season had just ended uh, as general manager. But 
you know, I was on the ground and, and, you know, I mean, Evan, give yourself credit. He was 200 losses into his general manager career when you, right. Showed up, right. Am that's I right? right. That? That's, yeah. right. Yeah. that's right. Well, my arrival helps turn things around, I suppose. And, <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I think I had a vantage, uh, and a viewpoint and a lit, you know, like literally just reporting notes that nobody else would have had, um, or, or very few people would have had, you know, because I, I, I've said this in a couple places, but I, you know, if I, if I die, there will be, a, if somebody does a, a little obituary, it'll say, you know, broke that story. I, I assume that, right. I guess we'll see. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, my career's not over yet, but I, but in, in some way I'm almost more proud of the fact that I was willing to write about, um, their management culture back in 2014. I, you know, I was a little young, maybe a little naive, um, certainly aggressive. I've always been a rather aggressive reporter and not in a bad way. Just, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to chase something. And, you know, that, uh, that story, it costs me in, in some way, you know, reputationally with the higher ups in the organization. And, and, um, but I was very comfortable with it because I knew that, you know, I knew that it was real and it was relevant and, you know, it should be reported on. And that story, I would, you know, in hindsight, having now done a whole chapter on the Cardinals and, you know, gone back through even more of your stuff, I could have done more on the history there, right? Because there, there really were more, I don't know if Houston fans were really ever quite aware of the extent of what was going on in St. Louis with Luna. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even I as a beat writer, I don't think I knew the full story. And um, yeah, I, I, I think the fact that I had, had spent time reporting on the management culture of the team now nine years ago put me in a pretty unique position. The story you're dis- you're discussing is the one that had radical ways, right? The the story that looked at um, how the industry viewed what the what the Astros were doing, um, right. and sometimes they looked down on what they were doing. But there were definitely questions about um, how volatile their approach was. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, kind of the way I looked at it was I am. I'm presenting to you all these questions that exist inside the industry. People are looking at you sideways and it kind of gets, uh, what's the word transmuted into you evangelic or question them. I never said they wouldn't be successful. Right. Right. But it was more that like, no, there is a question here of how much pushback. And if I were to redo it um, or, or do it again, right. It's really a very simple thing. A lot of people in a lot of different ways, didn't like the way the Astros were treating them, whether it was contracts, whether it was uh, things in player development, whether it was, um, you know, whatever. Uh, There there was just a bunch of buy-in issues and credibility issues that were developing as they tried to to make changes very quickly amidst all this losing. You know, it was not a good program of change management. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, you could imagine someone going through that in the end, like it being fine, but in the end it wasn't fine. You know, the, 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 the problems and the kind of the, the callousness and the, the willingness to disregard, it only grew from there in, in, in ways, not every way, but some ways. The time covering Luno and his arrival with the Cardinals, which came the same year I started on the beat, I believe, or give or take maybe nine months. Uh, the, that whole era, there was a lot of writing about innovation and creative thinking and out of the box and, you know, the 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 infusion of not just baseball IQ, but IQ and data sets into how teams made decisions. You know, when you look back, not just on that story, but kind of that era and to be honest, force me to look back at how we covered it. You know, there's that that old phrase in sports writing about how uh, you don't got up a player. Um, right. Don't you don't try to got up a player? Do you think the media should take something from godding up innovation? Yeah, and I, by the way, I don't think I think you were appropriately skeptical, or not even you were you were reporting the the skepticism that existed as a you know it, it, it the reporting you did at the time was not uh, declaring. Uh, the, the greatest thing since, uh, you know, sliced bread. And, and Jeff Luna was very good about seeking out people who would be willing to make that declaration on his behalf. And, and yes, in general, 
you know, one of the things that that um, I do remember after that 2014 piece was was how the, the protectionism that that existed. You know, it was very uh, what's what's the word? It was it was um, fact. There were a lot of factions in baseball media at that point, or really just two. It was people who thought they were progressive and the smartest things. Uh, around and and if you presented any reporting that suggested teams that were of that same mindset could be doing something wrong, well then you're an idiot. You're left behind. Mm-hmm. You're a luddite. You don't understand numbers. You don't understand math. You don't get where the industry is going. And why didn't you read Moneyball, right? And it was you know it, it totally lacked um, nuance. People just wanted to shove it aside. It was you know there's a lot of ego wrapped up in this stuff, right? Everybody wanted to be a disruptor. Everybody wanted to be smarter than everybody else, and. You know, certainly I, th- I think Jeff Luna wanted to be known as somebody who rev- revolutionized the game. And a lot of other people did, too, from media mm-hmm. to um, to front office. And so, yes, you know, I, 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 I hope a few things. I hope, one, that people pause and think about when they when they hear about innovation in general, just ask some questions about it. who is it affecting um you know, are there other things that come along with it? I, you know, people didn't sit there and um, I don't think many people were th- sitting there and thinking about, well, what could the effect on labor in, in baseball be if everybody turns to this hyper-efficient, um, always finding the next edge mindset that Moneyball, wonderful book, um, pushed, you know? And so there's there's all these ripple effects that come from this, this way of thinking. And... Um, yeah, I, I hope people have their eyes open t- toward uh, – the, the, this is the other point. You drop in for a week, you cover a team, you get some great access, you don't know what's going on on the inside. I'm sorry, you just don't. You know, mm-hmm. you can still write what you see, but you've, you've got to be kind of – I think reporters, writers need to be very aware. You don't know what you don't know. And, and you know, you sit there and sing somebody's praises for – uh, because they're charming and they sound really smart, um, maybe because they're they're good looking, you know, whatever it is, right? What, it, what you know, some people have a lot of charisma, and you've got to you got to sit there and go, do I actually know what's going on inside this organization? Yeah, and and I and I think one of the lessons for me is, I mean, I think I always kind of realize this, but um, you don't know until you really spend some time on it and ask a lot of people a lot of questions. And so people ask me, well, are the twenty twenty two Astros fixed. Winning the 2022 World Series does not mean that Jim Crane has fixed his culture, right? In all these other ways, I would need to do a lot of talking to a lot of people to feel confident in that conclusion. I'm glad you brought up Crane. One of the last conversations might be the last conversation I had in person with Jeff Luno. I'm going to guess that it was uh, was there in the 2019 World Series, and it's outside Hinch's office there at, at Nationals Park, and. I was working on a story about how the Astros had embraced or did they embrace this villain notion that they were brash and they didn't mind it. And, you know, the, the no, kind of the theme of your book is that they could be the villain, but no one would no, notice that they were villainous if they won. Because right. like you say, villain winning fix is everything. And so I talked to players about this. Um, you know, and there, there was a lot swirling around the team. We've touched on it at this time, but outside Hinch's office there, I talked to Jeff, asked him if he had a moment and I, I asked him like, what line aren't you willing to cross to win? Do you know where that line is? Like what line aren't you like, is it your reputation? Like you touched on, like if, if, if that, if that move is going to make it possible, impossible for you to go to the hall of fame. Would you do that if if that crossing that line will make it impossible for you to get another job in baseball? Would you do? Where's that line? Is it the line that says you get bad PR in the Wall Street Journal? Is that the line? And if, I didn't spell it out like that, but I I asked him, "What's the line you won't cross to win?" And I I'm not sure. Did you come up with an answer for where that line is for the Houston Astros in your book? I mean, in the end, you know, I, I guess you could imagine more severe lines that they would have crossed, but it, it, they lacked guardrails. It, it, it was, you know, if you as you get into the later years with Luno, the, the front office becomes more insular and, and it's smaller and it's people really at that point kind of exclusively who owe their baseball careers to him. 
you know, so he's, he's really mm. this outsized force in there. And there's not kind of this other veteran leadership beside, you know, AJ Hinch had been around. Um, and Luno gets territorial with him about, tells him after, after the 17 world series, they're talking about a contract. You know, I, I don't want to GM in the manager's chair. Um, mm. You know, there, there was a conversation when Luno takes over talking to a friend in the industry um, that he knew it wouldn't end well. And whenever it did end, that, that he suspected it wouldn't end well, that, you know, he wasn't going to be the type of guy who gets another job somewhere, gets a second chance. And so knowing as much and having lived what he lived in St. Louis and having had that experience, you know, he's, he was going to do it his way. And, you know, I, I think coming off of St. Louis where he didn't have full control and now he does have full control, you know, who's going to stop me, right? Like, you know, I'm going to do this way. I'm going to, I, I want to do it. And, um, and he did that and it, it ended the way he predicted it would end. And Crane set the tone for that somewhat in their first meeting when he passed across a sheet of paper, as you describe in your book with what the limitations were on him. Right. And that, that, that sheet of paper, what, what did it say? Nothing. Blank sheet of paper, which right in, in in a way that kind of adds to the indictment of the whole thing because they were trying to build it from scratch. They were trying to build it in this way that that um, was supposedly the right way to build a baseball team, the idealistic way, and you know look at all the things they didn't focus on. You know, I, I often when discussing this, it's not so much what the Astros paid attention to and cared about it's what they didn't pay attention to and mm. care about it was so bottom line driven it was all about the wins and the money that well you don't really care about how your employees feel if you uh bring in someone uh who's been suspended for domestic violence you don't really care if uh people are really unhappy with their pay or uh with their titles you don't really care um about much of anything except are you getting the result and you know and that's really the conflict with the whole thing is that they you know, for a time they were getting the result and, um, you know, some, something was, un, was uh, lurking underneath it. As we've discussed often, the, the entire second chapter of your book, Winning Fixes Everything is about the Cardinals. I want to fast forward and not, not give away spoilers and everything here, but two thirds of the way into the book. And this is the last thing I want to ask you about is there's this passage that I find fascinating. It's as things are, well, there's a lot of friction in the, in the Astros front office, great success on the field, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of angst, drama, um, and rivalries stewing. And you write, you quote, uh, an, an Astros employee saying one way in which it always worked is that there were people who had worked together at the Cardinals and people who hadn't been at the Cardinals. And there was always this sense that if you weren't one of the people who had been at the Cardinals, you had to work harder and be better to get noticed. It's like there was an exception of being cutthroat if you used to work for the St. Louis Cardinals. Do you have any sense as to why, even after all that time, even after success elsewhere, and especially with how things went with the Cardinals, which if Jeff Luna walked away and um, you know said, I don't have any feelings for them whatsoever, I think people would understand. There persisted this connection that he maintained to the Cardinals, this almost fondness, it wasn't loyalty. Was it nostalgia? It might be possessiveness. Um, he had a tweet, if I recall, uh, about Pujols toward the end of the year. Um, you know, it, it, there was another tweet, I believe, sometime in the last year where I think it was a picture of him with some members of the Cardinals front office. It was, yes. Yeah. It was in the press box, yeah. Or uh, no, in the GM box. Right, right. Which, you know, I mean, if you look around, are other G GMs doing that? Not typically. It's not so, or, you know, ex-GMs, you know, ex or current GMs, rarely do, do you see that kind of display publicly. Nothing inherently wrong with it. But, um, you know, I think there was, an, there was an attempt to get some credit. I think there was, you know, the people who he did show that favors favoritism to Sig, Mydell and um, Michael Elias, uh, Ozzo Campo. I mean, you know, these were people who were, who were kind of his allies in St. Louis, right? You know, mm -hmm. a little bit of the, you were part of my entourage at the start. You were, you were there before I got big type, type of um, sentiment. And it did create problems in Houston because 
you know, it was kind of supposed to be this uh, outside business world meritocracy. I mean, even it's, you know, one of the interesting things was how many people inside of the Astros really didn't like the book Astro Ball because they felt it was a very narrow narrative that was based on really three people, Jeff Luno, Sigmidel, and Mike Elias. And, you know, there were questions of other people who should have gotten credit. Um, But I think, you know, and the book goes into this. Jeff positioned Sig to be part of the narrative. Um, He didn't position a guy like Mike Fast or Brandon Taubman. And, you know, there are people inside the Astros, and those two were very important, um, who, who think that that was kind of deliberate, that it was, it was you know, helping out his buddy. I mean, you know, uh, Sig was in Jeff's wedding. I mean, you know, they're really close. And, mm-hmm. and there's nobody who's who, in my experience, has been more of a Jeff loyalist than Sig. Um, you know, he, he does that uh, because he might not want the others to get the attention and, and lose them potentially uh, by being poached. And so some of it could be a little, um, uh, you know, yeah. five dimensional chess. And some of it could just be, these are my buddies. That is Evan Drellick, senior writer at the athletic, the writer who along with Ken Rosenthal broke the story on the Houston Astros and their sign stealing caper. His new book is winning fixes everything. Evan, it's a tremendous piece of reporting. It always has been, but I'm, I'm glad that you got to kind of pull it all together, put it between two hard cover, hard covers. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I almost nailed it. So close. But put all your reporting there on for something to slide onto one bookshelf and for people to enjoy. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation, um, which in many ways we got to relive. So thank you for your patience, and I appreciate you doing this, man. Good work. Um, uh, I'm happy for you. I hope uh, hope people read it. I hope people read it as more than a baseball book, but also somewhat of a of a business culture gone sideways. I I, I appreciate the kind words, and I'm I'm glad that um, I, you know that your reporting is in the book as well. You know, the Derek will decide, and and you should be. I mean, you, you know, you were. Um, you were on this beat before I was in a way. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I have a feeling that we're probably not done yet covering don't, some of this don't, stuff. Don't say that. Don't um, say, I need, I need a, <laughs> I wouldn't mind a few months of not, not writing a word about the Houston Astros, but you know, be careful what you wish for. We'll say. Yeah. The, the sequel is going to be a doozy. Good luck. You can find Winning Fixes Everything anywhere you get your books, including Amazon.com and, of course, independent bookstores. Of course, you can find it at your local independent bookstore. It's Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess by Evan Drellick. You can find the best podcast in baseball, of course, at stltoday.com and all of the Constant Cardinals coverage there from spring training, including a story about my fishing trip with Miles Michaelis. That's there, ran in this past Sunday's paper, and it's still there online at stltoday.com. You can also find the best podcast in baseball anywhere you get your podcasts, including iTunes, where you can listen to the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast. Please do rate and review the podcast. Of course, it's subscriptions that make sponsorships possible. And sponsorships continue to make this a weekly podcast here in year 11 of the best podcast in baseball. BPIB is brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis, and it's a production of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, stltoday.com, and me, St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Talk to you soon from Jupiter. Jupiter.